I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2017 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Increasing Yield Stability and Minimizing Stress on Strip-Tilled Corn, is being brought to you by Novatel. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know, and we'll make every effort to get it added. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to Novatel for their support of today's program. Novatel's GNSS receivers and antennas are found in the data collection, control, guidance, and steering systems of the world's top precision egg companies and vehicle manufacturers' products. As the global leader in OEM precision positioning technology, their customers rely on reliable, quality solutions that optimize growers' productivity and efficiency, and also save time and lower input costs. Visit them at www.novatel.com or call them today at 1 800 668 2835. Well, unpredictability is one of the annual certainties farmers can count on. In particular, weather conditions can have a dramatic impact on the success of a cropping season. And recent years have presented more extreme challenges for strip tillers to survive both intense rain events or prolonged dry conditions. Dr. Jerry Hatfield, who runs the National Laboratory for Agriculture and the Environment, a USD Agricultural Research Service facility in Ames, Iowa, says soil resources and weather are changing rapidly. He notes the last few years of weather data lay on the fringes of what we've experienced in the last 120 years. And especially in the Midwest, farmers can expect that trend to continue. But Hatfield says strip tillers have ammunition in their crop production arsenal to combat erratic climate conditions. In today's Strip Till Farmer podcast, Hatfield discusses the value a comprehensive strip till system provides to adapting to extreme weather conditions to include increased water infiltration and improved soil structure. Thanks, Jack, for the invitation. They do ask, did ask me to talk about taking the stress out of no-till or strip-tilled corn in all of this too. And I'm going to put together a picture for you throughout the day in terms of just how all these pieces begin to fit together because I have to give you a little bit of history, but really what's begun to fascinate me, and I have been doing research for over 40 years now in terms of looking at, at crop production systems. And there are two things that I've found and that is that we truly underestimate the degradation that we have put into our soils and we wonder why we don't get a yield out of it. And we get back and we think, well, if we apply more nitrogen or if we apply more of this or we till more, all of our issues will be over. But in reality, that's not what happens, is that we're going to have to reverse our thinking in terms of how do we really begin to look at this system in the short term, and how do we look at this system in the long term? The piece of this and why it becomes important is that I don't know that anybody really realizes that from now until 2050, 
we're going to have to produce as much food as we have produced in the last 500 years to meet world demand. And we're going to do that with a soil resource that continues to be degraded. And unless we reverse that trend, there's going to be a lot more starvation around the world. So that's point number one. The second is that this variation of weather that we're going to experience is going to continue for the foreseeable future. So you're going to farm in an area not only in which the soil resource is changing, but the weather is going to be changing even more in terms of the capacity to produce that crop. And so that's kind of led me on a quest over the past few years to really begin to look at what it takes to achieve the highest yields and the most efficient crop production systems that we can. I've been enamored by the, the high yield corn contest winners and, and all of this, and, and, but more importantly, I've been enamored by some of the things that Dan just talked about with how many pounds does it take per bushel in this system. Because yield is not necessarily the measure of how efficient our system is. I found that farmers love two things. One is they love to brag about the yields, but they don't tell anybody about their profits. Profit is the ultimate measure of efficiency. And in reality, being in a research mode is I don't have to worry about the efficiency part of it from the profit side. So we can try all sorts of different things. We can try all of this. And in all of this dynamic, as we've looked at how these systems are behaving, we've come to one sad realization is that in our whole programs is that we don't talk about the pathway to yield very much. Our research really focuses on yield, but it doesn't talk about how that plant went from the seed to seed at the end of the season. That we didn't understand the path of how that began to behave. And so what we've begun to look at is really what are the dynamics of this cropping system throughout the, the whole course of its season and how it's influenced by lots of different things uh, that go on in this overall piece of this. And so we need to improve the efficiency of our crop production, whether it be how much water it captures, how much nitrogen it captures, how much light it captures. Profit is a measure of efficiency. We need to enhance our soil resource that goes along with that because without enhancing the soil resource, that first part doesn't even achieve itself. And a third piece is that we were asked a number of years ago to conduct a, a comparison of tillage systems across the state of Iowa by the Iowa Department of Ag and Land Stewardship. And they came to us and said, you know, we, we really like to begin to promote reduced tillage across the state. And you have to realize that across the Midwest is no-till and, and reduced tillage really does have a bad name. And I hear all sorts of different comments, the fact that in Iowa I get told because I do a lot of work on no-till and strip-till that no-till is equal to no-yield. But I'll just give you a little factoid and along with this, because I've been back collecting data from no-till producers. This is not plot data, this is actual field data. And I've asked them for at least 10 years of data and what I find is that no-till yields are basically somewhere in that range of 20 to 30 bushels above county average, and that the yield increase over time is actually much steeper than the county average yield increase over time. 
So not only are they yielding more, they've actually allowed the technology to express itself. So in the process of compiling all that inf different information and all of this. So if any of you have no-till or strip-till yields that you'd like to send to me, uh, I just need 10 years of data on a field average. I don't need combine data. Uh, but I really want to begin to poke a hole in this insane idea that we have to till our soils broadcast and as deep as possible in order to make it work. And the reason I want to do that is to basically not attack the farming community, but to attack the research community. You have to all realize that I have many years in to retire, so I don't have to worry about who I offend. <laughs> I don't have to worry about who gets elected president. I don't have to worry about a lot of the different things that forces the idea that we need to improve our agricultural system in a way in which we need to focus on improved water, nitrogen, and light capture efficiency. And I can tell you that there's been very little attention paid to that. And if we're gonna make the system work to our advantage in the future, we need to reorient our thinking in all of this. So going back to this study uh, that IDAL says that we Asked us to compare conventional tillage systems, basically conventional having both fall uh, tillage as well as spring tillage to incorporate the residue. It just got to the point of meeting at 30% residue cover. Uh, we did strip till, uh, where we formed the strips in the fall and then we planted directly in the spring, put our fertilizers on in the fall. And then we did no-till, which we, only disturbance was right at planting. And we did a system where we moved the residue away from that. So basically we created a modified strip in the spring. And we conducted that across a lot of different counties. Uh, I had one technician who took care of all this and she put a lot of miles <laughs> on, a, on a pickup because she was at one of those sites every week uh, in terms of collection of the data. So we went all the way from southeastern Iowa clear to northwestern Iowa, uh, southwestern Iowa, and when we went to the first producers to ask them this and saying, we'd like to run this comparison study and we needed maybe five acres of, of plot work or size of plots, they said, no, we're not gonna let you do that. And it wasn't because they didn't want the study, but they wanted those strips and those tillage practices ran all the way across the field. So every one of these is not a plot study. It's actually a field study in which those strips are a minimum of 100 foot wide. So you're not looking at one soil. That typically where we do our research, we're looking at multiple soils across that field. That's why we spent a lot of time in this whole piece of the puzzle. Here's one of the things we observed in all of this, which somewhat surprised everybody, is that when we go to a, even a spring or a fall strip, we get a much deeper and faster vertical root development as opposed to a fall or a spring tillage system, which would be conventional, which the roots tend to go horizontally near the surface. And that leads to lots of issues and problems in the Midwest. And the reason that leads to lots of issues and problems in the Midwest is because of our rainfall pattern, is that we tend to be too wet in the spring. And if we have an above normal rainfall period, we end up with a shallow rooting depth and, and people say, well, what's the rooting depth of that soil? The rooting depth, the potential rooting depth could be six feet. The actual rooting depth in a lot of our wet conditions, and we saw this in 2013, was actually about 18 inches because that's all the farther the plant needed to go during the vegetative stage to extract all the water that it needed in order to growth. 
And then, here's our problem in the Midwest, is that we have water in the spring, and then we end up with all this variable precipitation late in the summer, and that plant needs more water, but at that point, once it moves into the tasseling phase or the reproductive stage on soybeans, it doesn't grow a root system. Annual crops are geared to produce a grain, and they don't convert any of that energy into growing a root system. And so if you're limited to 18 inches, that's your effective rooting depth, and you're going to exist on what's on that. And we see that happen over and over again. So what happens in strip tillage is what we begin to see is that that plant responds to the conditions and since it tends to be just a little bit drier in that system it tends to root down and we see it root down about three times faster in the vertical direction as opposed to a conventional till system. So that's one piece in which it weatherproofs this. We've seen that in 2012. Everybody remembers the drought of 2012. That'll be the last drought until probably the next couple years in which we have another drought that we talk about. But it weatherproofs our system from different perspectives in all of this. What we also observed across all these different sites is that our stand emergence uh, was fairly even among the practice, but the difference was in the rate and uniformity of emergence. When we went and we, we did stand counts at each of these different sites is that we'd get all of our emergence coming up. We had pretty good stands, but what was happening is that our strip till system and then the fall spring strip and fall strip and then our fall chisel and then our spring tillage systems, the spring and the, and the fall strip actually had the faster rate of emergence and the most uniform rate of emergence. We love those systems from a standpoint, well, the kids love those systems because we send them into the field each day to count how many plants have emerged. And so in the strip-till systems, they all basically emerge within one day. Conventional till systems, we would see plants emerge over a three to five day period. So we, we see that differences uh, are really due to the moisture content within the seed zone. It's due to aeration within the seed zone because the one gas that's been forgotten in all of this that makes it all work is oxygen. And so when we're basically looking at that system from an entirely different perspective is that it's how well we create a seed zone that allows the gas exchange to occur and then couple that with the moisture content. So we see a great deal of uniformity of emergence in, in the strip-till systems uh, and all of this. So during this talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the experimental questions that we've been asking We'll talk about this early season plant growth because there's a correlation between early season and, and yield. And then we'll talk about yield and yield components as well. So the question that we were asking is really, is there a difference among tillage systems? Whether we talk about conventional strip or no-till in corn and soybean growth and yield. And is there effect on plant to plant emergence? And this is where we depart from a lot of the different pieces in which gets done is that we're actually out there measuring each individual plant along a length of row. And our length of row generally is 17 and a half feet, so we measure that magic thousandth of an acre on 30 inch rows. And we measure every plant along that row throughout the whole growing season. I have lots of kids <laughs> that, that make these counts uh, and everything. They really kind of objected to the, that whole concept in soybeans though. <laughs> Corn, it really wasn't too much of a problem. You know, that's only a few plants. In soybeans, 17 and a half feet a row is a lot of bean plants. 
And they kind of go, you know, let's rethink this whole process. In fact, what they said is, why don't you rethink this whole process because we're not measuring every plant in 17 and a half feet of soybean row. And, but what we've begun to do is understand why is there differences among individual plants and what does that mean for us in terms of the capacity of that plant to really perform in its optimum performance. And if you start looking at that question, it really begins the same thing in which you often ask, is why do we see all that variation in ears of corn? Why does we see all that variation in the number of pods per plant in all of this? And we just went in and started making all these counts. So we looked at a lot of different things. We, we measured plant emergence. We measured growth and development at the V2 stage, the V6 stage, the VT stage, the R2 and the R6. And it's, that's actually measured on individual plants uh, as well. So how big was that plant? What phenological stage was it in? Uh, we measured yield and yield components and all of this. And then we actually were really trying to characterize this plant-to-plant -plant variation as well. And then we have a whole lot of remote sensing observations on top of this crop as well. Ultimately, we'd like to get to just using remote sensing rather than just carrying every bit of plants back. And just imagine, if you will, on one of our harvest dates, is that we basically fill up this stage with plants that we bring in from the field to about a depth of this. So we're bringing a lot of plants to look at all this variation uh, in all of this. So what we see in all of this, and I'm not going to go through all the different numbers with you, I'll give you what we observed, is that we do see a much more uniform emergence uh, in strip tillage. We see a uniformity in time, and we see a uniformity in plant phenology, is that when those plants emerge, they're emerging uniformly, and most of them will be at the, at the cotyledon stage, and then they'll be at the V2 stage. And so we get very, very little variation in phenological stages, particularly at the V2 and the V6 stage, in both corn and, and soybeans as well. And so you can almost lay a ruler across those plants, and, and they're all going to be at the same height as well. And I'm sure you all observed this as well. We presented some of this to a, a big conference in, in Iowa at the end of this study and showing all the plant-to-plant -plant variation and why and conventional till was a lot more, there's a lot more variation in all of this. There was a number of variations that we were observing in all of this. And a lot of the, the conventional till people accused me of running that planter at a faster rate in the conventional to bias the results. Uh, and all of this. And I said, no, actually I had to plant slower in the conventional because I had a much more non-uniform seed bed as well. We went back and actually measured yield potential. And what we find is that there's a greater yield potential associated with greater vigor. And the yield potential is not only in corn in terms of a potential ear size, it's actually in soybeans as well. And in soybeans, one of the yield potential pieces that we see is not pods, but the potential number of flowers per node. If we don't stress that plant in the first 30 days, we'll get anywhere from eight to 10 flowers per node. If we stress that plant in the first 30 days up to V6, we'll drop it down to maybe two or three flowers per node. And so we create a yield potential, meaning it harvest all that. The first 30 days become very, very important to us in how do we establish yield potential and uniform vigor is one of the ways in which we begin to do that. We spend a lot of time looking at this piece because it's fascinating to me in terms of how do plants capture light and convert that into carbon. 
and then ultimately, how do we convert carbon into photosynthate? How do we take that photosynthate into yield at the end of the season? So we spent a lot of time looking at light capture. Uh, this just happens to be soybeans from 2012. We had a very fast growth on our conventional till systems compared to our no-till and strip-till systems. But at the end of the day, at the end of the season, the yield significantly higher on the strip-till system, which is a little bit higher than our no-till system and much higher than our chisel plow system. Is that yes, we got that plant out of the ground early, but in dry years that didn't really pay us any advantage from that standpoint. In corn, we're seeing an interesting piece is that how do we capture light early in the season with different systems? Uh, and then we're actually looking at uh, what role does tassels play uh, in terms of reflecting light out? And how do we begin to look at the arrangement of leaves uh, in all of this to maximize our light capture? But one of the things that we see is that this biomass at tasseling, we have a little bit, well, we didn't really have any difference in, in vegetative stage on corn. But what we did in yield is that the strip till out yielded the no-till, which is out yielded the chisel plow as well. And again, it was light capture, and it's total light capture throughout the season. And one of the critical parts in all of this that we began to discover is that, yes, it's important in the early season, but actually even the more important part is the late season, is how long do we keep that photosynthetic activity working within that plant during the grain filling stage because every day that we continue to have green leaf area, we have photosynthate that goes into grain. So it becomes the rate of senescence. So the faster the rate of senescence, the lower the yield. Uh, and we actually have yield projection equations that are allow us to begin to look at this. So it really becomes an overall seasonal aspect of how we look at this. We've spent a lot of time digging roots. Uh, Strip-till systems uh, tend to have a larger root system. Uh, this is one place when we were doing the plant-to-plant -plant variation that my students really began to rebel <laughs> about this digging roots uh, in that and washing them out and running them through root scanners and everything else is not our idea of a good time. And so, you know, it just becomes a different dynamic. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to, again, recognize Novatel for supporting this podcast. Novatel's GNSS receivers and antennas are found in the data collection, control, guidance, and steering systems of the world's top precision aid companies and vehicle manufacturers' products. As the global leader in OEM precision positioning technology, their customers rely on reliable, quality solutions that optimize growers' productivity and efficiency, and also save time and lower input costs. Visit them at www.novatel.com or call them today at 1-800-668-2835. Reflecting on Jerry's comments so far, he noted that one of the mistakes often made by farmers is underestimating degradation in soils and they wonder why they're not able to increase corn yields. Applying more fertilizer, especially nitrogen, doesn't necessarily solve the problem in the long term. And strip tillers need to consider that the true measurement of efficiency isn't yield, but profit. As Jerry noted, farmers are often willing to brag about yields, but more reluctant to discuss profits among their peers. 
Let's jump back into the program now and hear more from Jerry Hatfield on advantages of a well-developed strip-till root system and its benefits on water infiltration and corn yield stability. That early season vigor that we see and we can put it into the system in terms of how do we manage our nutrients and, and more importantly, what that water availability and oxygen availability is in the season pay us in terms of the yield uh, aspects. They're consistently larger because they capture more of the yield potential and part of the reason they capture more of the yield potential is this late season senescence rate. And go out in your fields and begin to look how rapidly that plant is senescing and different types of tillage systems. And you can tell a lot about that dynamic uh, in all of this. Uh, the other piece is that we see a large advantage uh, in the strip-till systems uh, in both the wet year in 2013 and the dry year of 2012. We see the advantage in 2013 in the wet year because that deeper rooting depth that was early, remember 2013, we were extremely wet and then we went extremely dry. We had two different years, all packed in the same year, wrecked havoc in terms of our crops. And what we did is in 2013, in our conventional till systems, we did really only root down to about 18 inches. We suffered water stress late in the growing season, very dramatically. Uh, we didn't see that in our strip till system because it did have a deeper rooting depth. Part of the issue that we had in 2013 that also limited our yield potential on conventional systems was that that conventional sealed over. We had a lot of yellow looking corn, uh, which wasn't due to nitrogen, it was basically due to oxygen content. And that strip-till system allows that gas to be exchanged uh, between the root and the atmosphere that allows that physiology of that plant to continue to do that. 2012, same thing. This deeper rooting depth allowed us to access more water, access some deeper nutrients uh, late in the season, and that residue cover that's between the rows suppresses evaporation. So we made use of all the water that wasn't evaporated between the inner rows back to the atmosphere. And that can account for as much as one to two inches of water during the season. So what we end up with is that one or two inches of water makes a lot of yield at the end of the season if you can capture it. So it's not always about the dynamics. And so in understanding, these pieces really do help us. We see the same thing in soybean yields. A little bit more inconsistency uh, in all of this. Soybeans are actually a more fickle crop in all of this. And I think part of it's due to the nutrients. Part of it's due to the interactions between oxygen content, a number of different things. And so soybeans, we've become very fascinated with about how do they, how do they really set yield and how do they do that. We see most of our inconsistency in yield among tillage systems is because of the interaction with the seasonal weather. It's those weather patterns within a year that cause a lot of these dynamics. And most of the time in research, when they talk about tillage systems, it's just a year by tillage interaction. But it really is about the seasonal dynamics of the weather and what causes this. And so with our six to eight years of data right now, we're really beginning to understand some of this. But what we did with our individual yield data is our individual plant data, is that allows us to actually project the potential yield. And so what we did is we said, well, let's take the largest yielding plant in that row, and if the whole yield had behaved like that large plant, 
what would the yield look like? And so you can get up to this overall piece of the puzzle. And so we, we did that for corn, we did it for soybeans. Here's the potential piece of this. And what you see in all of this is that two things. One is that the strip till is always has the highest yield because those years are more uniform, but also that variation because when we have all these individual plants, we can actually compute just how much variation there is about that. What we see across all the years is strip till has the highest yield projected even with the individual plants and it has the smallest amount of variation because most of those plants within that length of row were pretty uniform. Conventional till systems still tend to have the largest variation about that uh, as well. Strip tillage has the highest yield, smallest variation among year, and it's, a lot of that's due to that early season vigor in this tillage system. That uniformity of that V2 and V6 really pay you dividends at the end of the season in all of this and because it's setting a larger potential and it has the capacity to achieve that potential throughout the growing season. So now it really comes to the point of how do you take the stress out of this and this is that we're going to have increasing variability in our weather during the growing season and that's going to actually continue to increase variation in yields. I spent a lot of time looking at, at crop yield variation across time and across space. We've actually been looking at the whole Midwest in terms of the dynamics of really what has happened and what is happening into the future. We need to think about how do we weatherproof our systems by being able to ensure our crop yield potential is maintained. Just a little bit of fascinating piece that, that we've been looking at is that I'm always enamored by the high yield contest winners. 532 bushels last year, uh, 512 the year before and all of this and, and what really becomes fascinating in all of that is you realize that every one of those high yield contest winners is under some sort of conservation tillage system. There is not any high yield winner that's under conventional tillage. So what does that tell us? It tells us that maybe we need to rethink our systems uh, out there from many different perspectives. There's lots of different reasons for that, and I can give you another hour talk on, on why that is. But we need to weatherproof our systems because of this variation. What we've been looking at, this is just Illinois data. We have it for all the eight Midwestern states. This is weather variation. This is May-June precipitation versus July-August precipitation. This is all the data from 1895, but all I want to point out is the fact that the last few years lay on the fringes of what we've experienced in the last 120 years is that, and we see that across all the Midwestern states, is that 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 all lay on this fringe. And so we can expect this trend to continue. So what we've experienced in the past has no bearing on what we're going to see in the future in all of this. And so we need to be prepared in thinking about how we're gonna handle this system that's going to have increasing variability in it. And so if we want stress relief, we have to be able to access water early and late in a growing season. And we have to have favorable soil conditions for effective growth and grain production. Back to this yield potential piece. This is where the intersection between how we're managing our soil, how we're managing our crop, and how we're coping with the weather really begins to all tie together. Because if we think about this dynamic, is that we need to access water early in the season so that plant isn't limited in growth. 
We also need to access that water late in the growing season because that's what makes us yield and that's really what you get paid for. And so then it really becomes a, an aspect of how efficient that system is or crop is in terms of extracting that. And it's, it does require favorable soil conditions. And here's my definition of favorable soil conditions. Favorable soil conditions is really about having an aggregate structure that allows two things to happen. First, infiltration and rainfall. It's not enough to say I got two inches of rain, because I always ask producers, how much rain did you get in the soil? Because if you got an inch of runoff out of a two inch rain, you only got an inch of rain. And we need to reorient our thinking and saying, how much water did we really capture out of a rainfall event? And going back to my comment about soil degradation, I see runoff occurring out of fields with less than an inch of rainfall. The other sad truth about our climate patterns is our rainfall events are gonna become more intense and they're gonna become more infrequent. So we're gonna pick up rain events that are two, four, six, eight inches in a 24 hour period. And if that soil can only absorb one inch, everything else is gone and it's gonna carry soil with it as well. The other piece that has actually been ignored even in all the research community is the oxygen exchange. Plant roots below the surface are just like you and I, they need oxygen to perform. And if they don't have oxygen, what happens? If you don't have oxygen, what happens? Your plant roots do the same thing. And so what happens in a lot of ways in which we manage our soil is that we limit the capacity of that soil to, to transfer oxygen between the soil and the atmosphere, and we basically limit plant growth. And we limit it a lot more than we think from that standpoint. So we've got to have this soil structure in such a way that water goes in, oxygen goes in, CO2 comes out, all these different things. So it's a combination of water as well as this, because that is the favorable soil condition that we have to look at as well. Is if we're going to build this production system that, that keeps producing crops efficiently, is that we need to be able to have a tillage system that handles extremes in precipitation. And I can tell you the conventional till systems are not gonna handle that because most of the erosion, most of the runoff I see comes out of, of, of conventional till systems because they slake very quickly. We don't have any protection uh, in all of this. We need to understand that those same tillage systems induce a lot of variation in our plant production in terms of yield. We often look at yield variation across the whole field. We know the poor soils have lower yields than, than good soils within that field. Uh, if you start looking uh, within that soil and look at plant to plant variation, we find out that there's a lot of variation that's induced and that variation decreases as we go from conventional till and then we end up with no-till and strip-till having the least amount of variation in all of this. Uh, and it's due to the early season plant vigor. The other challenge is that we need to overcome some of the variation through better understanding of how tillage affects plant growth and how tillage interacts with now the nutrient supply, but the water and the oxygen supply as well. Because what we see within this system as well, as we improve soil quality, and all the things that we see occur under strip-till systems is that we make more efficient use of our nutrients, we make more efficient use of our water-nutrient interactions that go on. So with that, I'll leave you with your challenges. 
I'll leave you, I, I can overcome the tillage challenges for you, I can't overcome the weather challenges. <laughs> because, but I can tell you how to build a system that makes it work. Well, thank you, Jerry, for sharing your research and perspective on how strip tillers can prepare and adapt constantly changing weather and field conditions. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank Novatel for supporting this strip till farmer podcast. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And for those listeners who would like to read more about Jerry Hatfield's presentation noted during the program, you can visit www.striptillfarmer.com. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series in iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. And don't forget to keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on July 19th for the next episode in our 2017 podcast series. And be sure to visit striptillconference.com for updates on our national strip tillage conference coming up in less than a month on August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska. For Jerry Hatfield, Novatel, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.